The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. To help us kind of understand the social situation that was going on that Jesus was speaking directly to, I want us to give you a background on what was happening in first century in Israel. So right now what's going on is that the Roman or the Roman Empire ruled the world at this time, all the way from England to India. And Caesar was the ruler of it all. Um, there's this phrase that went around called Pax Romana, which essentially meant peace at the edge of a sword. So Rome would come in, and they would take over your land, take over your money, kill off your military and your leaders, and from there on, they would say, we'll bring you peace. And Israel was one of the many nations that ruled uh, the Roman Empire, and words cannot describe enough the cruel, harsh treatment that the people and the poor uh, experienced. If you try to stand up or mess with Caesar, you should know that your life would end in death. And you can imagine the Jews that are living in this time are so hungry to go to war with Rome. They're so angry and they have, um, they just want blood and that's how they want to deal with things. And Jesus understood this inner battle on the inside of what was going on. He knew how humans felt and he knew that our human instinct is to fight back. If somebody were to come and punch you out of nowhere on the street, I ought to imagine that your natural human response would just send a punch right on back. How many of you, when you were younger, younger siblings, did you guys fight with each other? Yes. Who fought with your younger siblings when you were younger? Like, yes. It's just what you did. I don't know if any of you know my sister, Michelle. Um, she graduated not that long ago, but my sister and our family was known as a biter. That is what she did. And if you made her mad, you knew that like the bite was coming. And like there's this like the best story of Michelle was when my mom was at Costco with her when she was about three years old, and my mom ran into an old college friend that she hadn't seen in like 15 years. Okay, so my mom and her friend are chatting it up, and as time goes on, my little sister is growing extremely jealous of the attention that my mom's giving her friend and not to her. So apparently, she got herself out of the stroller and walked up behind the lady and bit her on the calf. Like, I mean, she screamed so loud. My mom was absolutely horrified. And I would imagine if my sister was not a little toddler, like, she would not have had that gracious of a response back to my little sister. Like, you know that, like, she was, that must have been so painful. I remember them being painful. I cannot imagine what that like, moment was like. And, I mean, for us, our natural instinct isn't also just to get even with somebody. It's like, oh, you bite my calf. I'm going to bite your calf back. It's like, no, <laughs> you bite me. Like, I want more. And it always escalates. And it escalates beyond measures that we really don't intend for it to do. And sometimes violence can escalate to matters and measures that are they're awful. And we see this not just on a human-to-human level, but we see this on a political level. We see this on a national level. And so Jesus comes in this moment of time, and he wants to address our human nature that he knows that we struggle with. And as he comes in to comment on it, he also comes to comment on an already gracious ancient law that we find in the Old Testament that he speaks on in Matthew. He brings up a couple of texts that I want to give context to before we dive into the Matthew scripture. Uh, Jesus comments on a scripture that's found in the book of Exodus. He says, it tells us, or it informs us that God says, you will have punishments that actually fit the crime. 
he uses the phrase, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And essentially, this was a radical idea for Israel because to them, all that they've experienced is Rome coming in and saying, if you mess up this much, your punishment is going to look like this much. To them, and the fact that it didn't just apply for Israel, it applied to everybody, including their neighbors. And another text that Jesus comes to comment on is found in the passage in Leviticus, where God calls us to be holy, just as he is holy. And now the word holy can sound like a very intimidating word, um, but it really gets at this idea of being separate, um, to be apart from, to be different than what the world um, the different than the world is. And God specifically addresses to not seek revenge against people, but to choose to love your neighbor as yourself. God doesn't want us to stoop to this level of violence, but to be like him. God is saying, copy me, mimic me, be like me, so that's who you become, holy and set apart. And so we're going to go and look into Matthew Um, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, and I want us to be listening for Jesus addressing both of these passages. Um, because these people are hungry for retaliation with Rome. And in it, what I don't want you to hear is Jesus giving them moral commands. Instead, listen for Jesus unveiling to them a whole new way to be human. He wants them to know that they're God's chosen people, and because of it, Jesus is calling Israel to be the light of the world at last, and this is how they can do it. So, let's look at the text. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, in this phrase, but I say to you, is what the rabbis would kind of key in on saying, listen up, this is really important. I am about to show you the heart and the back of the law of what God's really getting at. So don't miss out. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, let's pause here. What are we, what are we hearing right now? Oh, Michelle the Fighter's here. Hey! <laughs> we talked about you a minute ago. Anyways. <laughs> okay, so what are we hearing? We <laughs> Sorry, I should have warned you. Okay. We hear in this text that Jesus is admitting that, yes, there are evil people that are here in this world, but he tells us not to resist them. And I think a better translation for the word resist is really getting at this idea of do not seek to repay um, an evil person or to seek revenge. Don't repay evil with evil. Instead, Jesus is saying, I want you to look for a creative, healing, and redemptive solution to conflict. And that's the first thing I want us to hear tonight, that Jesus is calling us to look for new, creative, and healing and redemptive solutions to conflict. The old justice found in the Bible was designed to prevent, prevent uh, revenge getting away with itself. But Jesus offers us something better. He says it's better to have no vengeance at all, but rather a creative way forward and reflecting the astonishingly patient love of God himself who wants Israel to shine its light into the world so that all people will encounter the one true God, whose deepest nature is overflowing love. Now, Jesus lays out four glimpses of what this looks like. If we go back to the second, or second half of verse 39, it says, But if anyone were to slap you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
Now, if you were slapped on the right cheek, it wasn't like a, this kind of slap. You were getting a backhand slap from somebody. Jesus, what he's talking about in this verse is not, uh, it's not a fight. He's actually addressing the honor-shame society that existed um, in their culture. He's addressing this because in this time, the worst evil to people wasn't death. To them, it was shame. Shame on your name, shame on your family's name. And getting a backhand slap by somebody was the ultimate insult and the way to shame people. And Jesus knew that hitting them back would only continue this evil circulate or keep evil in circulation. So Jesus says with us, imagine what, what could happen. And here is a creative gospel way to respond. Turn the other cheek. And he says this not to say, hey, take the fight and just, you know, endure another slap. It's deeper than that. He's saying, choose to turn with no violence or hate and to look that person and that man in the eye and engage him who is inflicting harm on you. Jesus gives us another example. He says, if anyone were to sue you and to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, in first century, you probably had two or three articles of clothing. You had your loincloth, you had your shirt, which was really a dress. <laughs> Thing goes down here, and you also had a coat. And it was very, it was absolutely illegal to take a man's cloak because a cloak kind of doubled up as your blanket at night. It's what you use. I mean, it was your shelter in a way, and that was off limits. No one could take it from you. And if you were to borrow it, they could maybe borrow it from you for more than a couple hours. And imagine. So imagine somebody has come and they're choosing to sue you. And they're going to sue you so much that they even ask for the shirt off of your back. Now, brilliant Jesus offers a redemptive way to deal with this. He says, give him your shirt and your coat. He says, giving him your clothing, all of your clothing, will, in the end, expose yourself and to be completely naked before him and reveal that you have nothing. And the hope is that it will... In turn, expose this man's expose this man's greed. So, through choosing to respond with this lavish generosity in an loving, nonviolent way, you shame this man into repentance. Jesus gives us a third example. He says, "If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles." And what was common for this time period was that you could be out walking around, going to work going to the synagogues, going anywhere anywhere and everywhere. And out of nowhere, a Roman soldier could come up to you and hand you his 30 to 40 pound pack, and you were expected to carry it for a mile. There was no exception. It didn't matter what you're in the middle of, and oftentimes these soldiers would just come and just, because they didn't want to carry it, they'd hand it off to you, and you were expected to carry it for a mile. Now, there was strict law around they could not, you were not allowed to carry it more than one mile, but you had to drop everything and do your duty. And so, um, and this is a very, very, very common practice or experience, I guess. Um, and so Jesus addresses this and he says, when this happens to you, don't fret and fume and plot revenge. He says, no, copy your generous God. Go with him the second mile and astonish the soldier. Get him to fret a little bit on the inside. And hopefully his you know, commanding officer would find out that you went two miles with him and hopefully he'd be in trouble. Jesus is saying, serve your oppressor, show him you're not a victim, that you're not weak. Be happy while you do it. Love on him. Make the voluntary choice to serve that man in a redemptive way. You know, what would it mean to reflect 
God's generous love despite the anger and frustration you might feel on the inside of you. The last picture that he gives us is give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the vast majority of the people on the streets were beggars. There was a very small class of rich people, and the majority of people that were in the streets were beggars. And Jesus is saying, when someone comes up to you for money, turn and actively engage them. Make eye contact with them. Treat them like a human. He doesn't say give them all the money that you have, but he is saying give to the one who asks. No matter if it's inconvenient, you you actively engage them and you work for the justice of this world. Now last week was an interesting week, but I had some of the human staff over to my house for a meeting, and as our meeting is going on, out of the peripheral of my vision, I watched somebody come up on our front porch, steal a package, and run away and get in a U-Haul van and drive away. And it happened so quickly that I really wasn't comprehending what was going on until they were driving away, and I was like, they just stole a package off my front porch. What? And and I felt especially bad because uh, we've been hosting a friend of ours named Harris, and the package was coming for him. And he doesn't have a lot of money right now, and he spent a decent amount of money because he needed a new pair of jeans because he had a hole in them. And so this person came and stole his jeans, and... I, just, I found myself just getting really upset, and I felt really violated. You know, just someone coming and stealing something off your front porch doesn't belong to you. And I don't know, it really irritated me. And I had ordered a book that was coming the next day, and so I actually drove home from work that hour to make sure that I got my book. And I even started to entertain thoughts of, I wonder if she's going to come again today and like attempt to take this package off my front porch. And the thoughts were like, very ugly, I will admit. And I was like, geez, Becca, where is this anger coming from? Um, And as I'm thinking about these awful thoughts, um, I suddenly was reminded of this Facebook post that I read of a friend of mine, like a month before, and I felt like God was saying, I want you to go back and read that again. And I was like, oh, I know where this is going. So I'm going to read this to you because it was really hit the spot, I would say. So this is what my friend Matthew wrote. He said, I left my wallet at a gas station today. More than likely, somebody saw it and capitalized on easy money. After canceling credit cards and figuring how I'm going to get on an airplane to fly home without my ID, I caught myself with a tinge of bitterness towards the individual who stole it, hoping that they would somehow be repaid for stealing it. That's when I decided, or that's when God decided to speak to my heart and totally change my mindset. He reminded me of how he was always giving and loved even those who hung him on the cross. As he showed me this, I caught his heart for the whole situation. So instead of praying out of fear, again, I began to pray what I believed to be God's heart. That whoever finds the wallet, even if they stole it, that they will be ridiculously blessed. No matter their intentions, they will get a chance to experience the God of abundance, who is never lacking anything, especially money. I still get blown away every time I'm reminded of the giving nature and generosity of the God we serve. And if you feel led to join me, pray with me that whoever finds it, that they would come into contact with the richest God in the world. The stuff that Jesus talks about is so easily applied to today's culture. It just looks a little differently. That post caught me so off guard, and it just gave me this kind of this heart check. Um, a mentality check that I knew that I needed, and it led me to pray a prayer that was like, well, 
Lord, I pray that person who took those jeans, that they would look so good in those jeans. I pray, I pray that they would be comfortable. I pray that they feel like more of a Seattle hipster by wearing them. No, but really, I pray that they would experience uh, blessing and they experience the generosity through it. And then in the end, I pray that in time, that their heart would draw close to the Lord and that he'd shower him with his unconditional love. It was hard to pray that prayer, but it's, I knew that's what I was being called to do. And all of us can take ordinary circumstances, and if we include Jesus in it, can radically turn it around for the kingdom. So let's get back to the text. Jesus continues in verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, quick pause. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about hating an enemy. Um, not even once. The Leviticus scripture that I mentioned earlier just says, Love your neighbor. Um, as yourself, it has nothing to do about an enemy. So what I think that Jesus is referencing is some sideways interpretation that people believe, were believing at the time and was going around. So he wants to address it, and he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before we dig into the second part of the text, I want to bring to the forefront of all of our minds what has been done for each of us. So we can also remember what God has done for our enemies. Before Jesus... There was judgment on the earth. You had to make a sacrifice to serve as your atonement for your sin. But that's, what, that's when Jesus came. He left the throne room. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life, a perfect sinless life. And God sent him to the cross to serve as our ultimate sacrifice. So now, every sin you've committed in your past, in your present, and in your future, before you were even born... Before you even born, it was already nailed to the cross. And when Jesus died, he didn't just die for you, he died as you. And when he died as you, he went to hell, and all your sins stayed there when he rose from the grave. He prayed a price for our, for our behavior. And our sin belongs to God, not to you now. And if Jesus took our sins away, why do we keep bringing it back? Think about this image. Growing up, we've always known that the garbage man came. If you were in my family, Monday nights was the night that we put our garbage out at the end of the driveway, and we knew that come the next day, somebody would come, pick it up, and leave. Let me ask us a question. Has anybody come back home and find your garbage spewed all over your driveway when you got home? Yeah, that'd be crazy. The garbage man does not bring your trash back to you. He's never done it, and we know that's how it is. That'd be crazy. And it's the same with our sin. Jesus isn't bringing it back to show us ever. It was nailed to the tree once and for all. So we're all new creation in, in Christ. And so I believe that we're not necessarily struggling with sin. We are struggling to become or to form righteousness, to be the person that we were originally created to be by God. And if that's true for you, it's also true for the people in your life that's hard to love and that you feel persecuted by. 
You know, the enemy will spend the rest of our lives trying to make us like him. He'll try to make us fearful and make us angry or feel anxious or sad. The list goes on, but he does that so that we treat others that reflect his nature. But the good news is that all of us have Jesus on the inside of us, and we get to become more like him. And the Jesus that's inside of us is stronger than anything the enemy could ever throw our way. Has anyone seen or know what an ultrasound is? My mom does ultrasound for a living. It's actually a pretty cool job. If you don't know what it is, it's basically, or it's often um, for women who are pregnant who come, and they get to go, and normally the moms are so excited, and they get to see what the baby looks like, and they do the sonogram on the stomach, and in the end, these pictures pop up on the screen, and they get to see what's inside their bellies. Um, and I was thinking about this, and... I want us to ask this question. Imagine if I came to you and I ran an ultrasound on your spirit. What image do you think would come up on the screen? What would you have inside of you today? For some of you, you may be seeing all the ways that you've fallen short. But guess what? It's actually not there, even though you think it is. Because Jesus locked it up in hell a long time ago. The reality is that when you would look at that ultrasound, you would actually see what Jesus has done for you. You would see Jesus on the inside of you, you see the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, and they're both very, very strong on the inside of you. That's what you would see. Jesus says back in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this command to love our enemies sometimes feels very impossible, but God is the geyser of love, and we have access to that. The God we love is in our DNA because Jesus is on the inside of us. And we are promised all things through Christ who gives us strength. All of heaven is attracted to the Jesus that is on the inside of you. You cannot help but be a magnet for his blessings. When you pray, you tug on heaven because Jesus is in you and is attracted to you. So if you pray, I believe that your, your prayers will be answered. That it's doable. That he can help you out. And Jesus never asked anything from us that he didn't do for himself or show us that he did first. Jesus did it all himself already, and he opened up a new way for us to be human so that we can follow in that and discover what that's like. When Jesus, or when they mocked Jesus, he didn't respond. When the Pharisees challenged Jesus, he came back with quizzical and sometimes human stories to get them to think a different way. When they struck Jesus, he willingly turned the other cheek. When he put the worst bit of Roman equipment on his back, the heavy metal cross that ultimately um, would be where he was killed, he walked the extra mile out of the city to the place of his execution. When they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for his enemies. And if Jesus only did what he saw his Father in heaven doing, then he did it so that we would know what our Father is like. This way of life was the blueprint for Jesus' own life. And if this is the way to show what God is really like, and if this is the pattern that Jesus himself followed exactly, I believe that Matthew is inviting us to become more like Jesus and reflect that love ourselves and to this world that needs it so badly. So let's read that second part again, starting in verse 44. It says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may know or that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good 
and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are they doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we're called to love, but how? I love this. Jesus gave us direction. He gave us clarity. He says, if you don't know, I command you to pray. And I think Jesus wants us to not just pray for people, but imagining it to pray on behalf of other people, which gets at this idea of I'm going to be able to do something for my enemy that he can't even do for himself or for me. I'm going to pray for him. And Jesus wants us to pray that God's blessing, that his salvation, that his incoming kingdom could come over and wash over them. That we could pray for their well-being. We could pray for their emotional or physical healing. That we would pray for God to step into their worlds and do a good work. And for some of us, it really feels impossible as you think of the people that might be coming to your mind right now. But I encourage you to try because the decision to pray for your enemy can really be one of the most liberating moments in your journey. Because when you start to pray, and if you continue to pray, you can't help but have a change of heart. I would argue that the more you pray about something, you're eventually going to have a change of heart. Maybe not immediately and right in that moment, but eventually. And that's the second thing that I want us to hear tonight, that prayer leads to a change of heart. And if we pray for our enemies enough, they'll cease to be our enemies. We'll go from having thoughts of just like, ah, oh, frustration, to empathy and things for them, like the woman who stole the package on my front porch. Um, and in all of this, we don't become these perfect people by any means, but we do become people that actually receive God's eyes, his spiritual eyes for people. Um, we'll get to see them through God's humor, um, his humble shaped lens. Imagine what would happen if we became so consumed with wanting to see people the way that Jesus does. That would be a really fun life. Um, what if we are constantly asking Jesus how he saw people? How they were known in heaven? I think we would move away from these feelings of anger and our bitterness, and we would become to think and feel a lot more like he does. And I would argue that if we practice listening prayers, that God would plant creative ideas in our minds, like Jesus talked about earlier. He'll say things like, this is how you handle this. This is how you handle this situation. Here's how to actively engage this person who's persecuting you and wronged you. And here's how they're known in heaven, and I want you to treat them this way. I went to a conference this weekend, and I became like really convicted over what they were talking about at one point. They talked about, how often do we go to God to ask him his opinion about things? And it can be anything and everything. And I know there are plenty of times when I'm finding myself feeling impure towards somebody in my head. Um, but I never, I would argue that I'm probably not the best of seeking Jesus right away and asking him what he thinks about who they are. And they ultimately are getting at this idea of, are we developing a lifestyle of inquiry with God? And as they were talking about this, I realized, yeah, my, my honest answer is probably no. And as I continue more, they kind of talked about this analogy that imagine that you are somebody who listens to the FM radio station, and that's like the world's radio station. But then God's speaking on the AM radio station, and you've been tuned in to FM all the time. And so as God's speaking through his radio show, we can't hear him because we're not tuned in to his station. And... 
In the end, I realized the world has nothing to teach me through the FM station. I've got to be tuning into the AM so I can hear what he thinks about my enemies. And I believe that prayer can give us both spiritual eyes and realign our hearts and realign us to be on the same wavelength that God is on. And what blows my mind about God is how he treats his enemies. He alludes to common grace. Jesus tells us in the text that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God doesn't choose who he chooses to bless and who he doesn't choose to bless. He looks down at humanity and he blesses all his sons and his daughters who love him and who hate him. He blesses them with the exact same world, the exact same oxygen, with food, with gifts, with talents, with creativity, with beauty, with sunsets and sunrises. And he gives and he gives and he gives to people, even the people who blaspheme him and rebel against him. He says, here's some water. Here's the joy of being alive. Here's food for your stomach so you're not hungry. That's an awesome God. And that's what he's like. And that's how he treats me. And that's how he treats you and the people that are around you. Not with hate. Not with vengeance. God loves his bride so much. So why are we treating his bride any other way but how God loves her? I think if we carve the time to pray so that we gain his eyes and align ourselves to his wavelength, I think we'll begin to mature and grow up to act like our Heavenly Father does. Jesus mentions in the final verse, you therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, don't think of the word perfect as you would that you are right now in English. It is not that. Um, essentially what he's saying in the Greek context, it's really getting at the idea of becoming kind of fully you. We were originally created to be that idea of being holy that we talked about in the beginning, being set apart from, being different. And he's saying, essentially, we become more like that person, that perfect person, by embracing the scriptures and maturing our walks or ultimately reflecting, reflecting who he is. But what I don't want you to do tonight is getting hung up on this idea of you being perfect. What I want you to get hung up on is the second part about the fact that our Heavenly Father is perfect. And that's also what I want us to hear uh, or to hear tonight. To get hung up on our Heavenly Father who is perfect. Get hung up on Him. The way that He thinks. The way that He talks. The way that His voice sounds. The way that He loves people and loves you. The way that just His character is so rich and good. Like, He wants us to know that. Because the more that we can know Him, the more and more we're going to be able to release the kingdom of heaven on this earth and we'll begin to restore the hearts of the children back to the fathers. If we know what that's like. And as we leave tonight, I want us to consider this invitation to be ruled by kindness. What if we live to fulfill a vision for everyone to encounter his kindness and his love through us? Like what was that? What if that was our lifestyle? What, we, what if we were a goodness army? That we did so much good in this world that evil was overcome by how much good we were releasing around here? What if we decided that no one was safe around you, that everyone that encountered you would receive this sense of goodness? What if we were people that were so overflowing with his nature that nobody could get away with being affected by us? Jesus spoke these words not so that they would just sound like a good idea. He spoke these words, he gave us these scriptures so that we would become the scripture. We would be the living scripture and go out and live wastefully on people. And I believe this is a reality that we've been called into because the world needs us so bad. 
God wants to use us in his redemptive plan here on earth. And I believe that God wants to resource us so, so magnificently to make others in around this world gasp around what they see in you, and that will lead them to Jesus. So I'm going to just pray for us as we go into this time of worship um, and just align our hearts with, I feel like, what God has called us to. Dear Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for your words and your scripture, God. Thank you for how you think about who we are. Thank you for how we're known in heaven, God. Um, I just pray that we, tonight, as we enter in this time of worship, God, that you would be speaking to us about who we are and how we're known in heaven, God. The good things that you see in us, Jesus. I pray that you would continue to make us into your image, to be people who are set apart, who are holy, Lord. And I pray that we would be people choosing to go love on the people that's hard. That we would change our minds and change our hearts about who they are and seek you and seek your wisdom, God. I pray for the supernatural ability to love people well because we have Jesus on the inside of us, God. And thank you that you haven't called us to do any of this um, and they're all things that you've done before us, God. Uh, we thank you and we love you, Jesus. Pray for the sweet time of worship. Amen.